Good morning, everyone. It is Sunday. This is the Sunday morning worship hour here at Victory Baptist Church. Yes, we are live streaming because of the COVID-19 situation that currently continues to go uh, just, man, crazy. Uh, uh, all the Even the news notifications that I've received over the last uh, little bit, um, you see here, do I have them all here? No, I don't have them all here. Um, I was I was looking at a bunch of them and uh, oh wait no here we go yes uh, Texas coronavirus update nine thousand three hundred and thirty eight people tested positive yesterday in Texas as U S virus virus cases surge again so nine thousand three hundred and thirty eight people tested positive yesterday in the state of Texas and let's see here. There was some big numbers globally. Let me see here. Um, yeah, I don't have a, a new peak now, 71,558 infections in the past 24 hours. Uh, that is uh, crazy. And I mean, just if you just look up, look up all the numbers dealing with it, it it's pretty it's pretty crazy just to to realize what is happening. But that is the situation in which we find ourselves. We're in the middle of a, a global pandemic and trying to figure out how to do church, the right way to do church, what's the right way, what's the wrong way, um, all of the arguing and all of the debating. But here's where we are. This is the situation we're in. So all we can do is try to make the most of it. And that's what we're going to try to do. And we're going to do that by turning to another controversial subject. Yes, if last week wasn't controversial enough, this week will probably even surpass last week's controversy. We are back. We're still in the book of Romans, chapter 5. We haven't really been able to take the text apart because in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, we decided to use that as a, as, as a starting point to really launch into a study of the doctrine of sin so that we can have a really biblical understanding of sin. That so many of the concepts that we have about sin that we can try to either correct, we can try to try to fix, we can try to replace so that we as Christians have a right understanding of sin. Look, so many times Christians criticizes, criticizes the world because the world doesn't understand that something is wrong or the world thinks something is right that is, that is wrong or they think something is wrong that is right. And we, we get all upset and we condemn and we criticize and we want to protest and we want the world to understand sin the way we do. But then you have to stop and go, wait, when it comes to Christians, do they even really have a biblical doctrine of sin? Do they really have a biblical understanding of sin? And sometimes when you really start exploring the doctrine of sin, you find yourself more in disagreement with other Christians than you are, than you, than you think you would be. You think, well, as Christians, we should all agree on the doctrine of sin, right? We should all agree on it, but we don't. That's why you have Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism. That's why you have all kinds of different views in regards to how sin impacts people, to the understanding of, of, of total depravity. Do we eradicate the old nature? Do we still have the old nature? How does sin impact children? Um, like so many different aspects. And you'll find out that the church, look, Christians don't even agree on the doctrine of sin. That should tell you something. So before we worry about the world's perception of sin, we need to make sure we've got our own figured out. And so that's what we've been doing. This is what we've looked at so far. Are you ready? We've looked at the definition of sin. Remember our definition of sin? Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. We have also looked at the origin of sin. We looked at all the difficulty with that subject, trying to come up with a good answer for that. When you have God and how much, how, how responsible is God? The use of secondary causes. How does that work? Does that really, does that really technically get God off the hook for all of this? So we, we looked at that and we definitely struggled with that. That was controversial. Then we talked about the doctrine of inherited sin, that we have inherited guilt. We are counted guilty because of Adam's sin. We inherit guilt. We're guilty before we ever commit an act. Before we ever do anything, we are already guilty. All right? I don't know if people truly believe that we're truly guilty without committing an act. 
Doesn't matter before you do anything. The moment of conception, you inherit a guilt from Adam. Then we inherited, not only do we inherit uh, guilt, we inherited corruption. We have a sinful nature because of Adam. We are born with a sinful nature and that nature separates us from God. And that nature is the source of all the sinful acts, right? We talked about that. Uh, we talked in that, about that in our natures. We totally lack spiritual good before God and our actions were totally unable to do spiritual good because we, it comes from a corrupted nature, all right? Then we started talking about actual sins in our lives, We talked about that all people are sinful before God. Then we talked about, does our ability limit our responsibility? We talked about that. Then last week, are infants guilty before they commit actual sins? And biblically, we would have to say yes. And so this raises the question of what happens to an infant when they pass away. Just make sure you remember this. This is very important. Whatever, Whenever you attempt to try to find a way to ensure that infants get to heaven, make sure you understand this. If you are not careful, you will back yourself into a theological corner where you end up either a, a full-blown Pelagian, a, a, a full-blown uh, believer in Pelagianism, or a, you know a, a, that's your that's your theological position. You're going to be a Pelagian, uh, or you're going to end up semi-Pelagian, or you're going to end up denying that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone, or, you, or you're going to end up. I mean, you're going to end up somewhere uh, theologically that you don't want to be. So a lot of people who argue for about the salvation of infants, I don't think they're trying to do so, but unknowingly, well, they should know, but I'll say unknowingly, by accident, they they, they walk themselves into a corner where they basically become heretics. Don't do that, okay? Don't try to resolve one doctrinal problem by accepting heresy as your way of of fixing a theological problem. Heresy is never the solution to theological problems. You can't, well, I, I don't like this. This is difficult. I need an answer. And your answer literally leads you into denying everything that you claim to believe. That is never a solution. And a lot of people don't see how they walk themselves into that kind of a problem, but they do so. All right. So this brings us to today's topic. All right. To today's difficulty. Now I did a, I did a podcast episode called Sermon Prep where I asked everyone to send me their answers. I didn't receive any answers from people from the church. So that's disappointing, but I did receive a lot of things from other people um, who had a lot of different thoughts. So we're going to have to work through this because this is a, um, <clears throat> how can we say this? It, it, I don't think it should be controversial, but if you ever talk to people in regards to this subject, you'll find yourself, um, you'll find yourself realizing that people get very upset and emotional about this. And I, I, I don't really know why, because it feels almost like it becomes personal at times with some people. They really want to uh, like try to prove a point here. And and I, I don't really know what point there is to prove. I think it's just something that we have to try to struggle with. But let me make this very clear. Whatever side you fall in on this subject that we're about to talk about, once again, if you're not careful you will walk yourself right into a theological corner where you're going to basically almost be embracing heresy to try try to prove a point. You, you can't do that. You, you look if if we are presented with a theological problem, sometimes the theological problem calls for not having an answer or not being dogmatic because sometimes all the attempts to have an answer or be dogmatic will lead you into a theological corner where you end up embracing heresy. That. Heresy is never the solution. We have to do our best to stay as biblical as we can in regards to this. So here is the subject, all right? Are you ready? If we were to to write this out, we would say, well, yeah, we'll state it this way. Are, Are all sins equal? Are all sins equal? Or as a systematic theology puts it, 
are there degrees of sin? Now, we at Victory Baptist Church, we spent uh, an entire sermon looking at the subject of the Catholic teaching on mortal and venial sin. And when we looked at that, on one hand, we can applaud what the Catholic Church is trying to do. They are acknowledging that no matter how much we, we, we can argue all day that all sins are equal, we don't view all sins are equal. We don't treat all sins as equal. So therefore, whether we like it or not, we really have this kind of system. At least the Catholic Church tries to develop a system. At least they try to say, here's the criteria for the serious sins. These are mortal. Here's the criteria for venial. Here's what mortal sins will do to you. Here's what venial sins will do for you. This is what you have to do to fix the mortal sin situation. Here's what you have to do to fix the venial sin situation. Now, the, the, their whole what it does and their solution becomes somewhat a little bit, con, you know, convoluted at times and it becomes just as complicated and you're like, well, wait a minute. So now it's mortal. Wait, it could be venial if I do this. Okay. Now that it's mortal, that means I've lost this. Okay. How do I get that back? I mean, you almost need a mathematical formula to fig- to keep track of it all. You need like a, a notebook to keep track of when you're committing a mortal, when you're committing a venial, what you need to do. So in many cases, Protestants look down upon that and condemn it. But we, our system is even more confused because we don't even really have a system to explain how this works. So are all sins equal? Now, Let's think this through and let's be honest with ourselves, all right? We could, we could do this in a, a, a hundred different, uh, we could, we could look at this in a hundred different ways. I'm just going to throw out just random ideas so that you can think about it, all right? So we're sitting in church. There is one person on one side of the church. It's a female. She's married. The Bible says she is to submit herself unto her husband as unto the Lord. All right, that's what the Bible says, right? Let's say she has a major problem doing that. She's not very submissive. She's not submissive in her thinking. She's not submissive in her speech. She's not submissive in her actions. She struggles with it. She tries not to do it, but she finds herself doing it over and over and over and over again. I'm trying to drink water so I don't lose my voice here. Over and over and over again, she just keeps being unsubmissive. So that means not only is it a sin, it's a reoccurring sin that happens over and over and over again. Now, you know and I know that probably never, okay, maybe it's happened, but rarely has it happened where that woman is going to then be brought up on church for church discipline. That she's gonna, look, she's got a reoccurring sin. She keeps committing it over and over and over and over and over again. Look, you're gonna be church disciplined. I doubt there's ever been church discipline for an unsubmissive woman. I doubt there's ever been. Maybe it has, but I doubt it's ever occurred. I doubt she's ever gonna have to stand up in front of the church and apologize to everyone. I doubt that it's gonna become some big controversy in the church. People just look at her and go, well, you know, she wears the pants in the family. You definitely know that like people will talk about her, right? You can tell she's the one making the rules or other women may go, man, I feel sorry for her husband because man, that woman tells you what she thinks and she tells you what for and you just got to do what she says. Everyone may talk about it. It may be the subject of gossip. It may be the subject of slander, but the woman pretty much nothing's going to happen to her. I doubt she's even going to be called in the pastor's office and be rebuked over it. I doubt the pastor, I doubt the husband is going to run to the pastor and say, hey, hey, my wife's got a problem and uh, I think you need to deal with it. For the most part, it's just going to be a family matter and that's the way it's going to be, all right? Maybe some other women will try to help her. Who knows? That's just kind of the way it goes. Maybe that's my perception. If you've got cases where women have been church disciplined for the lack of submissiveness, please send me your examples because I want to hear how that went down, all right? Typically, it's not. Now, on the other side of the church sits a man. That man has a porn problem. Now, I think we all know which one's going to be viewed radically different, okay? We all know. 
first that it's definitely happened where men are called into the pastor's office because the wife has told the pastor that the, her husband has a porn problem. And then he can, in many cases, then all kinds of things happen. He may have to, uh, he may be getting ready to be put up for church discipline. He may be told that he has to limit his access to the internet. He needs a monitoring system to ensure that he doesn't look at it anymore. He needs all of these things that uh, there's going to be all these rules and all these, there's not going to be rules and regulation on the woman who's not submissive. There's going to be rules and regulation on the man, on the man. All these things have to be done. Okay. Well, why is it viewed so radically different? Why is it viewed so radically different? Right. You can say, well, the pornography is a violation of his marriage vows. The unsubmissiveness isn't. Aren't she supposed to honor and obey? Now, if you remove that, if you remove that vow from the, the, the marriage vows, I guess you could argue, but don't, but I think everyone can agree. One's going to be viewed radically different in the church. One may lead to the man having to stand in front of the church and apologize, maybe church discipline. In some cases, uh, that his actions may even be viewed as grounds for a divorce in some churches. You kind of tell me those two things are not viewed radically different? They are. I'll give you another example. You have teenagers in the church. You have a teenager involved in a premarital physical relationships, right? They're involved in a premarital uh, relationship, all right? They, they're, they're involved in sexual sin. Now, that may get them in a whole lot of trouble, may even get them uh, church discipline, may, okay? It could, um, depending on what happens. Typically, nothing really happens unless someone ends up uh, pregnant, but in, in some cases, it's going to be considered a sin. Something may be done. But what happens if on the, uh, so you've got one teenager on one side of the church involved in premarital sex. On the other side of the church, you've got teenagers involved in homosexuality. Same sex physical relationship. You're going to tell me the church is going to treat those two the same? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. They're not going to uh, uh, treat those the same. No way, no how. No way, no how. Not going to be treated the same in any way, shape, or form. So how how do you how do you do this? Well, we know the Bible says that if a man looks at a woman with lust, he's committed adultery. So then, like every man has ever looked at a woman, do we treat them as an adulterer? No, we we know we don't treat that the same way. We, 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 as, as a physical affair, we, we draw a distinction. Well, is that a right distinction or is it a wrong distinction? Some cases, uh, a man looking at a woman with lust, if, if it leads to pornography, that's going to be treated differently. But wait a minute. The Bible also says that if you have anger in your heart, that you can basically be a murderer in your mind. Do we treat those people the same way that we do lust? Like we have, we have all these categories of sin and we know that we, that even if we, even in churches where they claim that sin is equal, we don't treat it as equal. We don't treat it the same way. We're all over the place. That is just a fact. And, 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 and people can argue all day. There's all kinds of, I mean, everyone approaches it so different. That sin is scandalous. That sin is not so much scandalous. That's, that sin is, you're done. You've got 47 consequences and it's like, People do this all the time with the consequences. I, you know, well, David committed adultery. Look at all, these are consequences. So those consequences go on. Well, wait a minute. David didn't just commit adultery. He committed murder. Right? And, 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 well, he had consequences. And, and I've, I've seen people say this. David committed adultery. That's why he couldn't build the temple. So those are the consequences of adultery. Well, wait a minute. Solomon was committing adultery at a pace that David could not keep up with. And he was able to build the temple. So, so how do, so we, we even try to find scriptures to justify what we believe should be the consequences of certain sin and how people should be punished for certain sins. It's like, we, I don't know if we even really have this figured out. So it, what does the Bible say? Are there degrees of sin? Is sin equal? So how do we approach this? Well, we're going to, we're going to utilize Grudem systematic theology because he tries to navigate these waters. We'll see if he does so in a biblical way, whether we agree or disagree. Now, and remember, this is very important. There are Christians out there who believe, number one, they don't believe all sins are equal. Number two, they believe there are levels in hell, that not, that not everyone just goes to hell, that there's levels in hell. I guess that means there's levels in lake of fire. Some believe that there's levels in heaven, 
right? That you'll you'll experience, you know, more bliss or or more glory. So there's levels of sin, levels of hell, levels of heaven. I will argue if there's levels of sin and if there's levels of hell and there's levels of heaven, then what in the world, how do you understand that in, in light of the doctrine that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, and Christ's perfect righteousness is imputed to my account? Isn't all sin forgiven the same way? We confess our sins as faithful enough, faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness? Is that not the way all sin is forgiven? Well, if sin is different, like, is it different? Do we, are we to view it differently, but God views it the same? How do we understand this? Let's see what Grudem, Grudem has to say. I know that's a long, I spent a long time trying to go through all of those examples. And you may have better examples. Those may not be perfect examples. And you could try to argue with my examples. I'm not sitting there trying to create perfect examples. I'm just trying to create a, a situation where you can at least realize this has practical implication on how we view sin and how churches operate really coming down to this, all right? And it's very, it's very difficult in all the different ways we can look at it. Here's what Grudem has to say. Are there degrees of sin? Are some sins worse than others? The question may be answered either yes or no, depending on the sense and which it is intended. Now, Grudem is going to argue that there, this could be yes or no, depending on the sense in which it is intended. Here's the first way he's going to approach this. Legal guilt. Legal guilt. In terms of our legal standing before God, any one sin, even what may seem to be a very small one, makes us legally guilty before God and therefore worthy of eternal punishment. Adam and Eve learned this in the Garden of Eden where God told them that one act of disobedience would result in the penalty of death. And Paul affirms that the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. This one sin made Adam and Eve sinners before God no longer able to stand in his holy presence. And remember, all it was was one act of disobedience and it simply was eating that which they were told not to eat. It wasn't murder, it wasn't a sexual sin, it was just don't eat of this tree, they ate of it. Boom, death penalty passed on everything. All right, so one act of disobedience clearly is enough to, to make you a sinner and you no longer stand in the presence of God. This truth remains valid through the history of the human race. Paul, quoting Deuteronomy 27, 26, affirms, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Galatians 3, 10. That seems to be the idea in Deuteronomy, seems to be the idea in, in the book of Galatians. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Cur you are cursed if you don't abide by everything written in God's law. So that means we're all cursed. Now, are you more cursed? Are you less cursed? If, is oh, disobeying one thing in the book more is worse than an, another thing? Like, how, how do we understand that? The truth remains valid uh, through uh, throughout human history. Okay, cursed be everyone that does not abide and in, 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 abide by all things written in the book of the law. James declares, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. If you do not commit adultery, but you kill, you have trans, you, but you've become a transgressor of the law. That's James chapter two, verses 10 through 11. That's James chapter two, verses 10 through 11. If you break one law, you're guilty of all of it. So in other words, if you, or if you are guilty of one command of God, be submissive to your husband and you violate that, you're guilty of all of it. You're, you're guilty of it. You're guilty of every law, adultery, murder, all of it, stealing, bearing false witness, coveting. You're, you're guilty of all of it. Now, how does that work? You can say, well, that doesn't seem fair. That seems to be the biblical idea. You break one, you've broken all. Well, then if, if that is true, then how can there be any difference in 
How is there any difference? Now, remember, Grudem is saying this deals with our legal guilt before God. Clearly, our legal guilt before God, you break one, you've broken all of it. So there's no way to, there's not, you can't become more legally guilty before God or less guilty before God. So clearly, there is no difference there. That is an absolute fact. There's uh, anyone who believes that there's a different, a legal guilt before God based off sin, that makes absolutely no sense and it doesn't work. Uh, they can, uh, Grudem continues, therefore, in terms of legal guilt, all sins are equally bad because they make us legally guilty before God and constitute us as sinners. So Grudem is going to, uh, Grudem's argument is legally, there is no, there's no degree of sin, legally speaking. You break one, you've broken them all. So before God, you're legally guilty. I don't think there's a way to get around that. I don't think there's a way to get around that. Now, some will argue, well, God seems to condemn more some sins worse than other sins. I, maybe there's sometimes there's language, but if there's if you find one passage that seems to say that God, like, you know, God hates these seven things, like we go to Proverbs, there's certain things that you, you, you can argue there's some scripture that seems to imply he hates some things more than others. But if you really think about it, when you go through the Bible, and he lists sins, he will list certain sins with other sins that you don't even perceive how the two are linked together. He will link a sexual sin with, with other things. You're like, well, wait a minute. That, how are those in the same category? So I will argue this. Whatever God's perception of sin may be, legally though, you violate one, you violate it all. So there can't be more legal guilt. There can't be more legal guilt or less legal guilt because you violate one, you violated them all. Therefore, legally standing, there cannot be degrees of sin legally standing. I, I just don't see how you can get around that. And you can try to find scriptures and go, well, God seems more upset with this one than he is with that one. You know, he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, so he hates homosexuality more than other sins. You know, well, then you read other passages, was was uh, homosexuality the only sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Other passages of scripture seem to imply there were other things going on there. So, you know, like how, how do you work? Do we, do we judge, um, you know, he, look at the Israelites. He killed them for grumbling and complaining, right? He grumbled, you know, he, he, he like a lack of faith. He, they wandered around for 40 years. Like, do we have to go through every passage and say, well, look, God did this or God did that. Legally standing before God, you commit one, you've guilty of all. I don't see how you can have different degrees. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Right. And let's see what Grudem continues with. Now, there's legal guilt. Now he moves to a second category. Results in life and in relationship with God. Now, I, the fact that he groups these two together is a little possibly troubling, but let's let we'll we'll play his game and then we'll see if we have to kind of come back and fix this. All right, here we go. Results in life and in relationship with God. So he's saying now what we're going to do, are there degrees in sin as it relates to results and life and our relationship with God? I would rather separate these two out, but we're going to put them together because that's what Grudem does. And we'll see if he can prove a point here. When it comes to results in life and it comes to your relationship with God, are there degrees of sin? Now, this, this relationship with God thing is a little troubling because this sounds very Roman Catholic. Mortal sin does, destroys God's grace. So that it completely impairs your relationship with God. Venial sin doesn't. So is he getting ready to tell me that there are some sins that do more damage to my relationship with God than others? Not legal standing before God, they're all equal. But in my relationship with God, there's different kinds and then results in life let's let's see what he said how he handles this on the other hand some sins are worse than others and that they and that they have more harmful consequences in our lives and in the lives of others in the term terms of our personal relationship to god as father they arouse his displeasure more and bring more serious disruption to our fellowship with him. Now, I want you to stop right there. Okay. According to Grudem, there are some sins out there. 
that, uh, and we're going to focus on God first, that there are relationship, there are, there are things that we can do. There are sins that we can commit that hurt, that arouse uh, displeasure from God. They arouse a, a greater displeasure from God. In other words, you can commit sin A, doesn't arouse as much displeasure in God as sin B does, right? Now, again, this is hard to, to try to figure out how to work this. Secondly, there are some sins that you can commit. Sin A may not disrupt your fellowship with God as much as sin B. So he there he is making a claim that there are sins out there that will cause God to be more displeased with you and will cause more problems with your fellowship with God. All right, that's that's a big claim. That's a big claim. Let's see what how he does with this. Scripture sometimes speaks of degrees of seriousness of sin. When Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, he said, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. John 19, 11. All right. Let's say that's true. All right. Let's just go with that reading as being true. That Jesus is just not trying to make a point. Look, Pilate, you're here. It's the people who sent me to you who have the greater sin. All right, is Jesus there trying to articulate a doctrine about the degrees of sin? Or is he just utilizing the term in a way that we would understand, hey, Pilate, it's the people who sit here are the, are the, are the problems. Okay, you could argue, you could argue that, but let's play along. Okay, then Jesus is making an argument there that there are degrees of sin. All right, now how do we take that concept and apply it to sin? Like, where, where's the rating system? Where's the rating? You know, like in movies, you have a rating. TVG, TV 14, right? TV or, or, or PG 13, PG, depending if it's a TV rating or a movie rating, okay? TV mature, rated R. Like there's this rated system. Well, okay, even sometimes when movies try to rate, rate movies, you're like, wait a minute, that movie was rated that, but that movie was rated that, and that had this in it. Like, wait, wait what are you doing? Sometimes it seems inconsistent. Well, how would it be for us trying to figure it out? Well, in this case, guess what the greater sin is? The greater sin is the one who delivered Jesus over to Pilate. Those are the ones who have the greater sin. Well, we obviously can't re, we can't repeat that. That's not a repeatable kind of offense. So then how do we apply that to your life and my life? You see, it's one thing to have the concept. Once you make the argument, hey, these sins, God are, is more displeased than these sins. And this will cause you more problems in your fellowship with God. You've got to give me a list. You've got to create the list and, and, and so that we know. I need the rating system, right? I need to know, oh, the, these sins are over here in the, in the TVG category. They're not really going to hurt me too bad. Okay, oh, these are the TV mature ones. I, I, need, like, I need some kind of a rating system. Uh, this, is what, uh, this is what they have to say. The reference is apparently to Judas. Speaking of John 19, 11, So he who delivered me to you as the greater sin. So he's arguing this is apparently related to Judas who had known Jesus intimately for three years and yet willfully betrayed him to death. Though Pilate had authority over Jesus by virtue of his governmental office and was wrong to allow an innocent man to be condemned to death, the sin of Judas was far greater, probably because of the far greater knowledge and malice connected with it. All right, this is straight out of Catholicism. What's required for a mortal sin? Knowledge. Gotta have knowledge. Now, every time I hear Christians make this argument, okay, God's going to judge you according to your knowledge. Well, then the logical, the logical argument, the way to lessen guilt is, well, uh, now wait, he's already made an argument that it has nothing to do with our legal guilt. All right. So I guess the more knowledge I have, then the more guilty I can become. God will be more displeased with me and it will impact my fellowship with God. Won't, won't impact my legal standing but it will impact my relationship with God. Well, then guess what the easiest answer is to always be in perfect fellowship with God? Be as dumb as a box of rocks. Just be stupid. Just be absolutely ignorant. Don't know. Don't ever open your Bible for any reason. Don't know anything. This would be where well, ignorance would be bliss. Hey, if you know, you have a greater guilt. If you know, God's going to be gr more upset with you. If you know, well, then why do I want to know? I wouldn't, if my spiritual life 
will be better by not knowing, then you're making an argument for not knowing. Now, they will say, no, 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 you need to know. Well, why do I need to know if not knowing ensures that my relationship with God will be better off and God will not be as upset with me? Like, I, I don't know how you don't turn this to an argument against knowledge, right? Let's see what else he goes here. Um, when God showed Ezekiel visions of sins in the temple of Jerusalem, he first showed Ezekiel certain things, and then he said, but you will still see greater abominations, Ezekiel 8, 6. Next, he showed Ezekiel the secret sins of some of the elders of Israel and said, you will still, still you will see still greater abominations, which they commit, Ezekiel 8, 13. Then the Lord showed Ezekiel a picture of women weeping for a Babylonian deity and said, have you seen this, O son of man? You will still, you will see still greater abominations than these, Ezekiel 8, 15. Finally, he showed Ezekiel 25 men in the temple with their backs to the Lord, worshiping the sun instead. Here, clearly, we have degrees of increasing sin and hatefulness before God. All right. So he shows. Now, again, is this just, can this just not be a general way of describing? Look, I'm going to show you this and it's going to look like it's getting worse from worse to worse. Well, then if it's getting worse to worse, you know, it goes from worse to worse to worse and that, and there's degrees, then then we don't, do we not have to then take that concept and then extrapolate from it and create categories? I mean, this is what the Catholic church did. Okay, that's in there. That's the venial. Oh, now we get to the mortal. Now, how do we apply that to our lives? That seems to all deal with idolatry. There's different levels of idolatry. Well, he's already arguing that between our legal guilt from God, it doesn't matter. Okay, well, if it doesn't have anything to do with my legal guilt for God, then you're like, I can commit some idolatry and God won't be that upset with me and God won't be... uh, I won't hurt my fellowship with God as much. But if I commit another level of idolatry, then God's going to get more upset with me and it's going to hurt my... And then if I commit a greater level of idolatry, he's going to get even more upset with me. So now how do we rate the levels of idolatry? See, the, the key is you find the principle, but now you've got to take the principle and be able to apply it. How do I apply this? Hey, all right, those on the right-hand side of the church, you're, you're at level two idolatry, all right? Level two, you need to fix that. Hey, all those on the left-hand side of the church, you're like at a level 10 level of idolatry. You need to repent like now. In fact, we're gonna have to church discipline you. <laughs> like how, how does that work? How, how do you measure it? I, I, I don't understand how we take these passages and try to create these systems here. Um, let's see what else goes here. Um, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, whoever then relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches men, so shall he be called the least in the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5, 19. He implies that there are lesser and greater commandments. Similarly, though, he agrees that it is appropriate to give a tithe even on the household spices that people use. He pronounces woes on the Pharisees for neglecting the weightier matters of the law, justice, and mercy, and faith, Matthew 23, 23. In both cases, Jesus distinguishes between lesser and greater commandments, thus implying that some sins are worse than others in terms of God's own evaluation of their importance. Now, again, how do we draw the distinction there's greater commandments and there's lesser commandments. Hey, these are the commandments you have to keep. These are the commandments. Eh. If you commit, if you break these commandments, there's greater sin. If you break these, eh, not so much. Okay, I need I need the breakdown. Right? Do we need to break down? Because then we we could we could tell people in the church. Okay, guys, here's the list. This side, this list gets you in trouble. This list doesn't. That, I, like, I, I, I don't even know, I don't, I, how does that, how is it workable? See, it sounds great, and then people will take the systematic theology, and that's right. Sins aren't equal, you're crazy, and then quote one of these scriptures. Okay, all right, let me agree with you, sins aren't equal. Can, can you please give me the list and how this breaks down? In general, this is what he goes on to say, we may say that some sins have more harmful consequences than others, 
uh, if they bring more dishonor to God or if they cause more harm to ourselves, to others, or to the church. Okay. Now, I don't think anyone, I don't, I don't think anyone will disagree that some sins create, have more, have more, there are different levels of consequences that sin can bring. Let me, let me explain. Now, when I say consequences, this is not the arbitrary consequences that people want to, to give to sin. There are natural consequences that actions bring forth, right? In other words, if you engage in, uh, lots of sexual promiscuity and you are engaged in that, then you have a greater chance of dealing with the consequences of contracting, uh, you know, a sexually transmitted disease. Everyone understands that. If you are engaged in sexual activity, you have a greater chance, obviously, of a pregnancy. Everyone can understand that. If you uh, drink alcohol and drink alcohol, the more you drink, the greater chances of alcoholism, which can have devastating consequences on one's family, their career, their life, and everything else. If you are doing large doses of certain illegal drugs, you have a chance of an overdose. There's consequences. You have a chance of getting arrested. If you... a DUI, you have a chance of hurting someone else. You have a chance of being arrested and going to jail. You get the idea. There are consequences that come from actions. Now, so, so this is the way we work it. If I, if I commit a sin, then that the, the level of that sin is determined by the consequences it brings. Or is it, or is the level of that sin determined by the potential consequences. In other words, if I commit a sin and those consequences don't happen, then is that lessen the sin? Or once the consequences occur and then they hurt other people, you know, like if it's a private sin and nobody knows about it, then, well, then I didn't, then the consequences didn't happen. Once it becomes exposed, okay, now you hurt this and you hurt this and you hurt this. Now it becomes a greater level of sin. So is it because the sin has the potential of hurting people that makes it a greater sin or the fact that the sin actually hurt people? Is it the potential? Right, because you can be gossiping and slandering people all day, right, all day long. Now, until someone finds out, didn't really hurt anybody, right? Nobody knows. There's no consequences. Now, once someone finds out, it could lead to it could lead to a church split. It could lead to uh, broken relationships. Uh, then they're going to go tell other people what you said. So therefore, you hurt your testimony. Like, like, how do you how do you judge this? I, everyone can agree there are different consequences that our actions bring. But let me make this very clear: that is true with God or without. Even in an atheistic society, people commit certain acts, and there's greater those acts can com- uh, bring about greater consequences. So. How, how do we, do we, do we judge the level of sin based off its consequences? I think we can say that some sins have more harmful consequences. That is true. Now, does that make it more, uh, do, do we now view that sin as more serious? I don't know. Um, moreover, those sins that are done willfully, repeatedly, and knowingly, with a calloused heart are more displeasing to God than those that are done out of ignorance and are not repeated are done with a mixture of good and impure motives and are followed by remorse and repentance. You see how convoluted, convoluted this becomes. Okay. So, um, first, so we, we, we determine the level of sin by the consequences it brings. Right, so I guess that's one way to, to, to view it. Second, we view, uh, if this sin is being done willfully, right? If it's being done willfully, I, I don't know. Is, is there sins being done unwillfully? I don't know. So are they done willfully? Is it done repeatedly? Okay, well, I mean, don't we all re- repeatedly commit sin every single day? I guess, is it the same sin? If you commit this sin, if you commit one sin willfully or repeatedly, then it's worse than than another sin. Now, please note, if it's willfully and repeatedly, then that, that makes it worse that doesn't mean it has to be a big sin. It could be a small sin if you're doing it willfully or repeatedly. Knowingly, okay, so there, there's the knowledge part. With a calloused heart, that's more displeasing to God than those that are done out of ignorance, are not repeated, are done with a mixture of good and impure motives. 
Well, who's going to determine if it was done with a good and impure, with whether it was a good motive or a pure motive or a, or a bad motive or an impure motive? Like, how, how does one determine that? Um, and it's followed by remorse and repentance. If it's followed by remorse and repentance, then that makes the sin less. Hey, you, you felt really bad about it and you repented. That, that makes your sin less. Well, no, wouldn't that... Does that does that judge the degree of the sin, or does that judge the degree of the of the repentance? Like I, I don't even know how this all works. Thus, the laws that God gave to Moses in Leviticus makes provisions for cases where people sin unwittingly. Leviticus four two, thirteen and twenty two, all found in Leviticus four. Unintentional sin is still sin. If anyone sins doing any of those things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, though he does not know it, yet he is guilty and shall bear his iniquity. Nonetheless, the penalties required and the degrees of God's displeasure that results from the sins are less than the case of intentional sin. Now, we got to be really careful here because some of those punishments carried out in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy are dealing with, in many cases, civil, like the, the, the law bears a civil punishment because it's run as a theocracy. So like, how do you commit an unintentional? I didn't mean to commit that sin. It wasn't my intention. I, I, I just found myself in a situation. Next thing you know, I'm committing it. It wasn't my intention. Okay, so if I can prove that I did not intended to do that, but it ended up happening, then does everyone give me a pass or do I get le- less punishment? Do I get less guilt? Do I... Like, how do I prove that it was unintentional? And how do you know? Like, you can convince yourself it was unintentional, but deep down it was intentional. I'm having, I'm having difficulties here with, with this whole thing. Um, on the other hand, sins committed with a high hand, that is with arrogance and disdain for God's commandments, were viewed very seriously. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, uh, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Numbers chapter 15, verse 30. They also want you to see verses 27 through 29. Again, they're going to Old Testament passages and saying, hey, this this is how people should be punished. Uh, Look at these sins. So this is what we're going to do. There's a lot more here that we could talk about. Um, and we'll have to finish this up at some other point. But let me let me throw this idea out there. If if okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this out there, and this is gonna be kind of my my theology on this, and you can tell me if you agree or disagree. Legal standing before legal guilt before God clearly that you can't draw degrees of sin. All sins are equal when it comes to guilt before God. I commit one, I'm guilty of all, I'm guilty before God. And how have my legal guilt with God taken care of? By the finished work of Jesus Christ. By believing on him, Christ's righteousness is imputed to my account. He forgives me by confession and repentance. He forgives me. He cleanses me from all unrighteousness. So legally before God, legally before God, it's all equal. Now, if I, if that is my primary foundation, if I now transition from the legal standing to now my practical everyday life, my relationship with with God, how do I make a determination about which sin creates the greatest damage to my relationship with God? Because how would how would I overcome that relationship or problem? Wouldn't I just overcome it with confession and repentance? Do I have to have a special kind of confession and a special kind of repentance? Do I have to do a special act of penance because I've committed a greater act of sin that had a greater damage on my relationship with God? So do I need to do more penance? Do I need to do more? What do I have to do? Isn't it forgiven the same way? And even if you say some sins commit a greater, a greater problem between me and God, well, well, then how do I know? How do we judge them? Like right now, this try, if you notice what they're doing, Grudem is like, I don't know why he just doesn't point us to the Catholic catechism. He's basically creating categories saying, if you do it this way, then it's a mortal sin. If you do it this way, like the same action can be either serious or less serious based on my willing, was it willing or unwilling? Was it done with pure or impure motives? Was it done with knowledge or was it uh, done with ignorance? 
So, so one sin can either be more serious or less serious de- depending on all of those factors. Also, the, I guess I also judge the sin based on the consequences that come from it. So if the consequences were really bad, then it was a serious sin. But if I avoid those consequences by it being a private sin, then is it such a serious sin? You see how convoluted all of this becomes? How do we even figure this out? How do we work this? I say, I will argue that the church has never figured this out in any meaningful way. I think the Catholic church has a system. The Protestant church has, there's no way of figuring this out. There's no way of even trying to work this. There, there's just no way. Like you'll spend your life, like you would have to spend more time trying to calculate the seriousness of sin than you would be able to even trying to figure out what to do. You would spend all your life going, okay, wait a minute. Okay, you committed what act? Okay, now let me pull up my, I got to get my notebook here. Okay, let me look here. Let me do a mathematical formula. Okay, I got a three, I'll say two, divided by the, carry the four. Okay, okay, do Okay, X equals, you know, two, Y equals, yeah, I don't know math, obviously. Okay, you're using some algebraic formula to try to figure out how to determine your guilt. I'm like, okay, now, based off of everything that we've calculated here, okay, name people in the church. Okay, Bobby, based off this calculation, I think your sin reached level four, level four. Congratulations. Four not is not, you know, you stayed below the five. So that's good. You're, you're, I, I don't think we're going to have to do any church discipline for, oh, 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 oh. Okay. There's, there's Twyla. Okay, man, I, I couldn't, I care. I had to carry a seven and I had to multiply it by a 10. Okay. You're, uh, you're, and you're at a level eight. Now you're in trouble. You're in trouble now. You're in trouble now. Like, how do we, how do we, how do we balance this? How do we, how do we calculate it? Okay. Were you willful? Did you do it with, I didn't know what well, you didn't know. I preached that sermon. Well, pastor, nobody listens to your sermons. So obviously, obviously I did that out of ignorance. In fact, I don't listen to any of your podcasts because I want to be ignorant, right? I mean, like, like, okay, well, you're right. You never listen to anything. So, okay, you, you, you. Never, never mind, Twyla. We're gonna bro- drop you down to four. Well, wait, no, Twyla does listen to everything I usually post. Okay, well, I'm sorry, Twyla. You're back up to an eight. Like, d- does not anyone see the ridiculousness of this? And literally, how do you carry this out? Because we, we look. I've said it before. We know we do. Not, we know there is inequality in how we carry this out. I've said it a million times. I'll say it again. There's someone in the church. They commit adultery. There, we all know that that's, that's, you know, stone the heathen, crucify the, the pagan, right? But, and I've stated it before, but we have to at least acknowledge this. Someone is married, they get divorced, they get remarried, and, and they can try to justify the divorce all day long, but the remarriage is hard to justify scriptural scripture. Even many people who allow for divorce don't allow for remarriage. Okay, well, according to the Bible, that's an adulterous relationship, why doesn't that adulterous relationship not get judged the way the other adulterous relationship get judged? Well, some will say, well, I mean, there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do. The other one, you can do something about it. Okay, well, that's, that, that you, so, so then it's not adultery that's bad. It's about whether you can do something about it or not do something about it. Like, how, how do you work that? How do you work that? Right, right. So, so, so either A, you have to find a way to justify the divorce, then justify the remarriage and find a way to justify it. There's all, like, this is the craziness. You, you'll, you'll see this sometimes in Catholicism. This is bizarre, 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 weird. Okay. Sometimes in Catholicism, you'll have someone who is engaged in some sexual sin, right? Um, but they'll say, but we have to use, uh, we, we cannot use contraception because that would be a sin. You're like, whoa, 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 wait. You're worried about the contraception part because that's a sin, but you're not worried about the other part? That's a sin? Like, it's like this weird, like weird, I guess in Catholicism, maybe then, you know, one's a greater sin than the other and one's maybe mortal and venial. Contraception may be a mortal sin. So maybe they're trying to avoid the mortal sin. So maybe it makes sense in, in Catholicism. But in the Protestant world, I don't know how we work this. We don't even have a system in how to calculate it. And if you follow what Grudem is outlining, I'm telling you, go read the catechism, the Catholic catechism on mortal and venial sin. He's created in the mortal venial category. What's mortal? Got to do it with knowledge. Got to do it willfully. Like, like he's using literally the words that come out of the Catholic catechism. 
Okay. But, but, but the difference is Grudem would say that our sin has no impact on our legal standing before God because our legal standing before God is determined by grace alone through faith alone. And if I put my faith in Christ, I'm covered in the righteousness of Christ and anything I do cannot mess up my legal standing before God. He just comes along and says, but some sins will connect, will greater, have a greater impact on your relationship with God. All right. Well, then how, how do I fix it? Do I have to do more repenting? Did David have to do more repenting for murder and adultery than the children of Israel did for grumbling and complaining? Do you have to do more repenting for, uh, does a wife have to do more repenting for not being submissive to her husband, who in reality she's supposed to submit to her husband as she submits to God, okay? Um, Does she have to do more repenting than a teenager who talks back to their parents? Well, we, now let's go back. Remember, he's trying to pull from Old Testament punishment. Well, remember, children could be killed for uh, the way they treated their parents. So does that mean disobedience to parents is far greater than what? Like, like you're going to try to pull Old Testament punishments up as your way of measuring how sin impacts your relationship with God? Like, that's going to be all over the place. So... Is sin equal before God? This is what uh, this is what I will say. Number one, legally before God, it's equal. That's what I'll argue. Number two, as it relates, uh, okay, sin is equal before God. That's number one. All right, I'll get that. I'll, I'll state it this way. Number one, sin is equal before God legally. All right, sin is equal before God legally. Number two. Sin, different sins do bring about different consequences and those consequences can be more harmful and more damaging. That is a fact, but that's true of all actions. Even everyone acknowledges that. I mean, that's just a fact of life. You commit and some of your actions will have greater consequences than other actions. Now, again, does, do I judge the seriousness of the sin based off the consequence? It actually produced or the potential of producing? I I don't know, but we can all agree some sins have greater consequences, right? And we're talking natural consequences, not the consequences that some people create a list saying it has to, uh, that these must be the consequences. They create uh, greater consequences. So sin clearly is equal before God legally. Number two, sin can have a greater different consequences level of consequences in life that is a fact number 3 to try to produce a system where sin has a greater impact on my relationship with god or or some sins make god more angry than others that system is almost impossible to define that uh system is almost impossible to you know qualify it to quantify it it's impossible to lay it out There's no way to lay it out. So, number one, sin is equal before God legally. Number two, sin does produce different levels of consequences. Number three, to say that sin sin has different levels and, and it produces more anger from God or it breaks my relationship with God in a different level, that becomes impossible to define, to quantify, or to qualify, and there's no really way to work that out. There's no real way to work that out. And I guess the last thing I would say is that every Christian, every pastor, every church has to struggle with this issue. How do we treat sin? How do we understand it? I think here's how, here's, here's how, here's, I think is the absolute foundational principle that all Christians must operate from. We all sin and we're all guilty before God. That's a fact. And we all have to strive to work together to help each other overcome that sin. We have to work to try to forgive each other of the sins that we have committed. And we all have to rely on God's grace and mercy. That's any other system 
doesn't work. That that's just the bottom. That's the reality. We've all we all sin. You can look at my sin. I can look at your sin. We're all sinners. Now we all we can't excuse that. We don't excuse it. We all have to work together to try to overcome it. And we agree that some sin may require. Obviously, you have to try to restore and try to help. As some sin may require some kind of discipline, but I think we all have to try to use grace. And I think we should try to do everything in our power to avoid trying to discipline. I think we, we try to give everyone a chance to repent and, and we give people the ability to be in church and yet struggle with sin. You can't just say, hey, if you're struggling, you keep committing that sin over and over and over, you're done. No, everyone's committing sin over and over and over. Just different sin. I think we have to have some way of viewing it, at least in some level, spiritually, there's got to be a view that we're all sinners. We all need God's mercy. We all need God's grace. The only way we're going to be saved by grace, we have to all rely on the imputed righteousness of Christ, and that we all have to strive with it. And and we have to determine how our sin, your sin, you have to determine how that sin is impacting your spiritual life and, and, and impacting your relationship with God. You have to try to determine that. All right, I'll stop right there. We're at 15 after. So I'll stop. Man, that's so... Ugh. I hate this because I, I wish there was a better answer. I don't have a better answer. I just think Grudem is just like, hey, let's go to the Old Testament. Look, look at these scriptures. And you're like, well, wait a minute. Some of those passages, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, yeah, there's different punishments, but some of those are civil punishments. We, we, we're not operating in that system. And you say, well, Jesus in the New Testament seems to imply this is worse than that. Yeah, but okay, even if he does, how do I, how do I take from that and create a system in which I can judge which one is worse and which one is better? I, I, I I cannot even begin to try to formulate that. I, I, it's just crazy. All right, we'll stop right there. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, we're all sinners. We all acknowledge that. We all admit that. Lord, help us try to understand how to handle sin and approach sin in a more biblical way and not such a fleshly way. And, and, and that is the way we typically do. We ask you to forgive us for that. We ask this in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen.